page 42. Uh, is this chapter four? Oh, uh, the one who asked. The one who asks. Today I am getting my instructions. I am getting them from something holy. A tall thing in a nest, in a clearing. Jory Graham. Okay, you want me to go on now? I'll start. I'll I, I keep going. Okay. <clears throat> we set out with lives shaped like wonder, wondering. In the beginning, we're looking, perhaps, for some kind of answer. An answer to the shared questions about life, death, and meaning. Or to the question... This is second. Okay. Uh, R2 the question. Uh, or to the question uniquely formed within our own lives. The thing that aches on some days and causes sudden a sudden pain on others. Something heavy with a sharp edge that we're carrying next to our skin. Are we propelled by intima intimations of another world inside this one? A softly glowing, glowing world in which the defining characteristics are not limitation or repeti and repetition, but something more spacious and at ease. How do we get closer to that? Perhaps we, we have both kinds of questions at the same time, which barely leaves energy to pack for the journey. Eventually, perhaps we lay those questions down in hope or desperation on a particular doorstep and were met not by an answer, but by another question. Perhaps we pick the new question up. It comes with a simple tag. Here's another way to ask your question a way pe people have been asking your question for a long time. Keep company with it, and you'll soon notice it emits a soft glow in whose light your, question, your questions look different. The questions you carry with you look like a pilgrimage. The question you've been given starts to look like shelter. I think Irma's next. A Irma? long time ago, a young Japanese woman is lost in, my font is off. Hang on a minute. I'm trying to make it not too big. A young Japanese woman is lost in mourning after the death of her husband. She leaves everything behind and goes to a monastery in search of help. She asks, what is Zen? In other words, what does Zen have to say about my sorrow? Her immigrant Chinese teacher replies that the heart mind of the one who asks is Zen. Her broken heart is the Buddha of that time and place. She decides to stay and find out 
what that means. Sitting in the dark, the woman runs her fingers over the face of the Buddha of grief, learning its contours. Over time, she discovers a kind of grace in that dark with grief as her companion, a deep humility, a deep stillness, a deep listening. In the Latin roots, grieving is related to being pregnant. That's unbelievable, isn't it? I remember a lovely speech a woman gave Turney years ago about a different tar- topic, but I always remember her saying, what if this isn't the darkness of the tomb, but instead the darkness of the womb with new birth coming? I think that that can relate to any kind of grief that a person may be going through, sometimes on a daily basis. It could be re- Regarding a job, loss of a, a loved one, you know, or someone you are seeing, or whatever the matter may be. It, how, it's just, how do you relate that to being pregnant? Well, I've never been pregnant. Uh, so I wouldn't know about being pregnant and possibly losing a child. But there's so many different stages of grief that that is why I thought it was being related to being pregnant. Because of the different stages of pregnancy. Anyone else have any ideas on that? Well, I mean, it's uh, maybe somebody already said it, but it's like the end of one, the end of something you know opens the door to some something else opening you know oh that's interesting it's a circle yeah yeah so like the end when i think of like non-death losses you know if you think you know like so many parts of my life have come to a close and like you can think of like so many different things good things and bad things but like the end of high school, right? It's like you're mourning all of that, that, you know, you're leaving behind, but it also opens the door to something new. But in or, both, it, also in both states, you're really aware of your body. There's that connection. Well, what about uh, Sunday when I had listened to... Uh, I, I can't. Yes, he had said, do not ever forget that Life is death. Did I not interpret that right on one of his words that though we may be living, we do know that we are living to die? Yes, no, maybe. I don't remember him saying that, but I'm not doubting you. Well, no, I mean, that may have been my interpretation. He may have not said it word for word. Because now I don't, you know, a baby is born, but that is the beginning of the cycle of death. 
And I'm not trying to be morbid. I just am viewing life that way. So you have to embrace both aspects of life in addition to the journey of life. The, the speaker to whom I referred, just to clarify, didn't do a very good job. She was actually not talking about death or birth. She was talking about darkness. That what may, what darkness can, can feel like a tomb, but actually be a place from which new life comes. Well, this, this line, a kind of grace in that dark seems to be about that yes mm -hmm. well i i second jess um that it's a kind of a metaphor or i see it as a metaphor here the last line especially and, and uh, uh -huh. no go ahead no go ahead well i just wanted to say that uh, um it is especially in the Tibetan uh, Buddhist tradition that uh, when they start learning about Buddhism, that, uh, yeah, that actually life starts the journey toward death. But they have also very sophisticated and very different ideas of what, what is happening with the death and then afterwards. Just a comment. Thank you. Thank you, Trudy. Thank hey, who, you. Who's reading next? Well, wait, I, I had something to say. Okay. Uh, yeah, as I, as, I, as I can relate to that personally, like I was thinking, okay, so how has grieving ever felt like being pregnant to me? Because I've done both. And... Um, and so it seems to me that they're both major life changes. Everything changes. Everything totally changes with both of those. When you're pregnant, your whole life changes. And, um, and when you're grieving, your whole life has changed and you're not sure what it will be going forth. Same as when you're pregnant, you, um. you're not quite sure what it will be going forth. And, so there's that aspect of it. And then plus there's in grief, it seems to me, at least at some point in grief, um, there is a sense of fullness uh, because there's so much love, you know? I mean, that's why you're grieving. And, um, and when you're pregnant, you, you begin to love that baby from the get-go, really. And um, and so there's there's both both of them have to me have a, a sense of fullness, and mm. so that's how I can relate on a personal level uh, for that sentence to make sense to me. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you, Ellen. Jess, are you next? Or Emily? Um, I don't think I'm next. I read already. No, I'm yeah, I'm next. I'm no, next. but Emily, Emily, Emily just joined us. Oh, Emily's oh, next. Oh, good. Are you on grief as a Buddha? Yep. Grief is a Buddha, not something to learn lessons from. 
but the way it is sometimes. The spirit and body of a season in the world, a season in an individual heart-mind. Grief is a Buddha. Joy is a Buddha. Anger is a Buddha. Peace is a Buddha. In the koans, we're meant to become intimate with um, all the Buddhas, to climb into them, let them climb into us, burn them for warmth, make love with them, kill them, sit down with one, sitting in the center of the house. You're not meant to cure the grief Buddha, nor it you. You're meant to find out what it is to be part of a season of your heart-mind, a season in the world that has been stained and dyed by grief, made holy by grief. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. That should be a Hallmark card. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a Hallmark card. Yeah, that should be a Hallmark card. Because oh, it's really man. powerful in so many different ways. Yeah, it really is. It's like, to me, it's like this thing about not trying to change the situation, the circumstance, or the emotion state. It's not like about changing. It's like really getting intimate with mm -hmm. all of it and allowing it and accepting it. And just like, it's almost like rolling around with it, you know, playing with it. It's just a... Uh, and I don't usually do that, <laughs> you know, with like certain emotion states or certain things like people are wanting to feel less anxious or to feel more whatever. Um, and everything becomes sacred. Even grief and anger. Everything is holy now. And that's, I think that's really important to recognize because... We as a society are told you shouldn't cry, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't be emotional, you shouldn't sit with these different emotions. But as a human, you you're, you should, because it may be related to the season, but you have to get in touch with your emotions. Yeah, I think with like anger, I think like, oh God, I'm not going to be, I like with Zen, it's like, I think we're with Buddhism and anger. There's a, um, I mean, I think there can be a judgment <laughs> around anger and that it could fuel like a more restless mind or more agitated mind, you know. Um. Okay, should I should I read? Right, just wait, wait. Who's making the judgment? Mm. The person person's making about their own mind. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. But all these things are relational, you know? Mm -hmm. I think like they're all like society allows or 
you know. Yeah, we're we're relational beings. It's true. Yeah, true. But aren't we as humans, because we we tend to go with our ego or our emotions, that we tend to just compartmentalize. I'm saying the, the the word wrong, rather than to embrace and go through these different Buddhas and these different emotions and accept it without judging? I think that would depend upon the person and the circumstance, wouldn't it? You know, what we feel is real. It's, it's our actions that we need to be care-filled with and do no harm. Feel there's nothing wrong. There's no bad or good feeling. Um, all of our feelings, we all have the river of life and there's stones in that river and there's an anger and a rage river and a joy and a silly river. And there's all, I mean, stone, there's all these different stones. We can't, we can't negate any of them. It's what we do with those stones, whether we throw them or just, you know, decide to stand on one a while or move quickly past it. Or, um, it's our actions, not not what we feel. Well, the, yet there's right there's right view. So how how does that, you know, that there are views that that are helpful and, and views that aren't, views that are truthful and views that aren't. So, so I'm curious about that, Nelda. Hmm. So let's say so some people say anger is you know just a natural part of us, and others say you know you don't have to be angry. I agree to both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I agree too. Yeah, I mean, you're going to feel. Angry. I mean, then in some schools of Tibetan Buddhism, anger is harnessed and is used as a skillful means. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> depends. The anger is the is the can either be the tomb or the womb. You know, the <laughs> anger can make you look inside. You feel it, you don't negate it, you don't push it away, make you look inside and give birth to a different you, a new you, a different attitude, but not push it away. How silly is that? <laughs> okay, who's, ne who's next? I did, I did want to say, uh, oh, okay. sometimes it's really hard to push... Um, push it away it's really hard not to push it away because sometimes it feels all consuming mm. and harmful yeah and then maybe as a defense mechanism we do what irma was talking about of compartmentalizing things you know finding ways not of looking at them directly yeah. not taking yeah. the whole picture it is a, it's a very challenging thing to sit in icky feelings yeah yeah the grief buddha yeah I mean, it's easy to like. It's easy to talk through, you know, and talk about, but like when life comes, it's like so. It's really applied. It's really hard. Um, I do want to say that in the four years that I've been at Abamata, I get angry less and less and less. It just doesn't pop up. 
Do you think, do you think that's from um, just sitting every day or do you no. think it's from, <laughs> what do you I think, think that's from? I think it's from a combination of enlarging my compassion stone in the river. Well, more than that, before that, enlarging my patience stone in the river. I used to be um, I, so impatient. I think that's the underpinnings of anger sometimes, impatience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then compassion's the other leg on the stool. And the third one is uh, generosity, generosity of heart, generosity of understanding, just generous. Thanks, Nola. Thank you. Okay. Um... Oh, me. No, I haven't read yet. I haven't read yet. Oh, you didn't? Okay. <laughs> no, yeah. We're, uh, Ellen, we usually go much faster, but we're having a very rich <laughs> conversation today, which is great. Well, this is such a rich book. The way she writes is, yeah. It's just, yeah. You mm -hmm. can, there are certain paragraphs where you can digest it. You could process it for a while. Um, okay. One day, the woman, <laughs> okay, remembering there was a woman in this story. One day, the woman hears the cry of a deer from a nearby stream. Where is the deer? The teacher asks. She listens, concentrated, ripe with something. Who is listening? The ripe thing bursts in her. The deer's cry echoes through the trees and rises simultaneously from her own scarred heart. She is there, cloven hooves wet, and she is here, wondering, and everything is listening to everything. I feel like this book is just like one gigantic koan. It's not at all what I expected. I thought it would just be about koans and then commentary and koans and commentary. And I think that's a good way, Nandia, of describing what we're reading. Later, she is at the stream with a lacquer bucket meant for flowers, only she fills it with water. She sees the moon's reflection in the water, her grief, her radiant. Later still, she says, the bottom falls out of her bucket, water and light soaking into the earth. All that wet, the stream, the watery moon in a bucket, the deer's moist eye, the woman weeping. Her tears become a solvent for what is unyielding within. The defenses 
we react to keep from feeling the pain of life all the way through, which also keep us from feeling its beauty all the way through. The tears soften and stick, bridge, topple and fill. They run like water under the ice. And suddenly the frozen is flowing again. Some people fear this kind of dissolving. Will I still be me? Will I disappear or go mad? Will I be able to fight climate change? Mm. If we begin this weeping, if we open ourselves to the pain and the poignancy and the terrible wounded beauty of life on this earth, perhaps we won't be able to stop and we will drown. We do not disappear, nor do we drown, nor do we cry forever. Grief changes, growing from its wild beginnings into a kind of dignity. If, from time to time, tears are called from us, they're no longer frightening. They are a small ceremony keeping us close to the world. They make us less brittle, more resilient. We weep because something is pouring in and we're overflowing, because it is impossible to say anything in some moments, and it is equally impossible not to offer something back. The salt tears are remnants of our oceanic beginnings, and they are also the residue of the difficult sea we cross in life. We contain both the timeless, depths and the waves washing over the fragile raft that carries us from birth to death. The woman in the story whose name becomes Mujaku goes, to, goes on to accomplish great things. She becomes the abbess of Turkaji convent where women with strong monastic vocations give refuge to women fleeing abusive marriages. Shelter for the grief of others is something grief can become. The nuns of Turkeji create a profound culture of awakening, with women teaching women, developing unique practices like mirror meditation and cultivating one of the most beautiful gardens of the age. It remains a convent until the turn of the 20th century. Generations of nuns wrote poems about Mujaku. One says that the water from her bucket filled many puddles. She was able to do this not because she found a way around her grief, but because she went quiet inside and listened for what grief was asking of her. Her cry for help, the cry of the deer, moonlight pouring from a broken bucket, her grief spread farther than the edges of her skin belonged to more than her particular heart. And so did her awakening. As she was held, so could she hold. That is what awakening is. I, Kim, can you go just back for one sec? I just think it's really important, this um, 
listened for what grief was asking of her because I, I think we tend to, or I tend to, I should speak for myself, um, think that grief is doing something to me uh, instead of uh, asking something from me, drawing something from me. So I really like this view. It really, uh, reading this all the way to the end, really clarifies that statement near the beginning about grieving is related, relating grieving to being pregnant because she used her grief to do so much good, to create so much. Kim, are you talking? I'm not going to repeat it. No. <laughs> she, I love that she went quiet inside and listened. Yeah. For what grief was asking of her. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. okay who's next? Oh, I guess uh, Cody, did you just read? Yes, I did. I guess it's me then. Okay, so we're in part three, keeping company with the koan, chapter five, introduction to koan practice. It helps you, it helps you cross the river when the bridge is broken. It's your companion as you return to the village on a moonless night, Wu Min. In the beginning, the koans are teaching you how to have a relationship with them. They throw you back and forth between form and emptiness until you're completely off balance. Then something relaxes and you start to sway and flow with it until eventually there's no longer one side and, and another, just one whole world stretching in every direction. The surprise is that koans begin to make their own kind of sense. It turns out they're accurate representations of the world from a particular perspective that you begin to share. Each koan is a small moment, a vignette that contains the universe. It's a lovely perspective to keep being reminded of and pretty soon it becomes the default perspective of your walking around life, which is a turn of events as profound as any I can imagine. So th this woman, um put koans together and, and this is one of his commentaries yeah. here. Yeah. And so rather than explaining his commentaries kind of confused, but they also broaden the meaning, just like it just said here, um, the koan is a small moment that contains the universe. So it opens up the koan. But it, that's what happened to my hair, you know, like scratching when um, Wuin's comments like are so confusing. <laughs> okay, so Alan and then 
Emily. Um, the underlying assumption of the koans is that being a human being isn't a problem to be fixed through spiritual practice, but a precious, disturbing, wondrous, devastating experience that we ought to take full advantage of if we can. Even the much maligned self doesn't need to be dismantled, just redirected to its own business, which is the survival of the organism and a sense of continuity in the life that organism is leading. Irma, are you next? I am, I just needed to verify that. Oh, okay. Um, I'm trying to make my screen bigger again. Do you want the tie bigger? No, I got it. Okay. I, I thought you had done that earlier. No, I just changed the typeface. Okay. So we are where? Can you point? Throughout the koans. Okay. Thank you. Throughout the koans, there's a focus to serving mean wait a minute what's wrong with my eyes meaning caring for a word as wondrous and devastated as we are Koran meditations inward turn serves an outward orientation. Orientation. Okay, hang on a minute. Just bear with me. I'm sorry. I'm trying to. Are you using a phone? Yes. Sometimes turning it the other way. Have you tried that? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, forgive me. Okay. <laughs> The light just came on. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, where's my orientation word? Hang on. It's the top word. The aim of the of koan practice now. At the top. Okay. So the aim of koan practice. Oh my God, I'm going blind. Hang on a minute. No, I'm not really going blind. Is to open a path into the complicated. No. Point. Oh, sorry. I'm Do you want to... other people, someone else to read? Yeah, that's okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Adjusting okay. The is, it's, is it sounds like you're having a lot of trouble. Story of my life. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Jess. Okay. Um, the aim of koan practice is to open a path into the world, a path that recognizes the luminous nature of things 
and also the complicated poignancy of embodied life. Okay. Uh, in this practice, we become the mixing ground of the vast eternal world and the swirl of a particular body, heart, and mind, condition, and circumstance. In a small and local way, we agree to step into a world in progress and help dream it on. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Why do you think she chose that phrase, dream it on? Oof. We agree to step into a world in progress and help dream it on. No idea. I just feel like because the koans can't be, uh, can't be, Understood is not the word I want, but can't be. Uh, you can't dance with the koan if you're stuck in logical reality. So if you have, if you're within your linear logical reality, good luck. But if you're dreaming it on, have a nice dance. Mm. Isn't the foundation of Buddhism that life is an illusion? Yeah. Well, we're oh, yoga chara, though. Yoga chara is later than uh, Theravada, than the original one. Say it again, please, if you don't mind. But, well, it is a school that developed in the first centuries of common era. And it's called yoga chara. Well, it's yoga achara so it's it's a long vowel yoga chara and uh, that means um, practicing yoga but yoga there means something entirely different than what we call here in the west and 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 tell me how that relates to dreaming life on it relates to uh talking about everything being an illusion. Oh, thank you. And this may come from the many centuries along discussions, debates between the Brahmanical schools and the Buddhist schools. Uh, it is a very important school. Um, it has developed further into a more logical uh, school after a few centuries. Um, actually, some years ago, we read once Vasubandhu's uh, teachings over the summer. But the, the book wasn't anything like, like this, you know. Um, here you have so many poetic expressions and metaphors and yeah, I mean, it just sort of got it down. I don't know whether it will <laughs> last, but um, this is very impactful. Whereas that, uh, that book that we read, it was a short book. Um, I don't think that 
had that capacity. It, it was just descri- describing what, what the school actually is practicing or what the ideas are. Were you there, Kim? Thanks, Trotty. Yes, I'm here. Oops. No, no, were you there? When yes, you were... I was there at Vasavanyu, yes. Well, I don't remember anything, actually. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> oh, it was a few years later. But I think what's important about what you're saying is all these things that we think is Buddhism is actually one part of, you know, Buddhism at a particular time. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's very many. Well, at a certain point, there were uh, they counted 18 different schools. <laughs> yeah, it's good to remember. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, can I read the next paragraph? Because sure. it's perfectly on my phone now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and my eyes can actually see it. Koans are both full of process, of promise and unsettling. And I've wondered if sometimes people have reacted to their sub- versive power by trying to domesticate them, treating them as the closely held position of a few, turning koan practiced in a stylized contest you can learn the rules for, treating them as allegories or parables or drafting them into purely psychological process. As I see it, the Cohen birds, messengers from the territory of what we don't know, don't yet know, need to remain untamed so that we can discover each one's particular weakness and not and and let it undomesticate us. Yeah, one's particular wildness. You know, and sometimes we do this with kids as we domesticate them too much. And the the idea of the public school, I think it started in New York City, and it was to produce a workforce for factories or for, you know, industry. So it was really a domestication Mm. uh, thing. You know, like like the army. Mm. Sorry. Okay. So Irma, and then I think I'm next, right? Yeah. In our house style, we found that there are a number of powerful ways to keep company with koans. We came to see that it's a it's it's good to be an individual holding the koan in meditation. It's good to be in conversation with someone usually a teacher who could bring ancestral knowledge and the perspective from the other side of the Koan gate. <laughs> and it's good to be part of a group of people setting out responses as a kind of mosaic of understandings, deepening and brightening each other. This raises the, va- the vexed question of Koan teachers. We aren't exactly thick on the ground, and those trained in our house style are fewer still. It's just 
true that teachers bring something to calm practice that so far no one has figured out how to provide another way. I intend through forest, forests of every color to speak to both those who are working with teachers and those who aren't, remembering that many of us have had rich relationships with cons for years without a teacher. It is also good to take koans out into the street so that we experience the tradition's great insights in the midst of our lives. Koans are robust, capable of being hauled around, leaned on and argued with. The wisdom of the tradition is for the most part encoded in brief, highly portable stories, images and quotations rather than philosophical or doctrinal texts. <clears throat> You can say that the nature of all things is fundamentally empty, or you can invoke a white heron invisible in the midst. In the mist. You can say that everything interpermeates everything else, or you can say clouds gather on North Mountain, rain falls on South Mountain. Now I understand what that means. <laughs> Will you tell us? Well, you can say that everything interpermeates everything else, or you can say, I've wondered, clouds gather on North Mountain, rain falls on South Mountain. Um, is that interpermeation, that everything is intermingled with everything and changes and connects with everything yeah yeah so is it me next can you can you please uh a little moment one page back please thank you Yeah, I'm, I'm complete, thank you. Okay. The taking the cons out into the street seems to relate to that, the specificity of clouds gather on north, rain falls on South Mountain, rather than the more abstract thing, everything permeates everything else. Right. No, honey, no. There's a much more poetic way to say the same thing. Would you like me to go ahead? Sure. These images are like dream fragments. As koans use this kind of poet, poetic and figurative language in order to engage more of us. As people often say, koans are meant to subvert the habitual processes of the rational mind. But that's a first step towards something else. When discursive thinking isn't running the show, other ways of knowing the body, heart, soul, intuition, and deep psyche, as well as the rational mind, can come in. Koans engage the whole person. 
then the barriers of skull and skin become more porous and the whole field shared by person and koan is engaged too, including other kinds of intelligence altogether. The quality of sunlight or a siren in the distance might have a comment to make. I said, Mina. Mm -hmm. The existential loneliness of selfhood is eased by enlarging our awareness, first within ourselves and then into the rest of the world. Iris Murdoch called this breaking of the encap en encapsulation of the self unselfing. She once described being submerged in unhappy rumination and then becoming aware of a kestrel hovering above her. And suddenly the mental activity that normally protected and advanced herself fell away. All that vacated space was free to be at the service of something else, a sky full of kestrel, the world. In this state, Whatever comes to meet us comes as tapagata, dustness or suchness. Its Chinese equivalent, rulai, means thus come, referred to in the tradition as the complete presentation of the whole of something. James Joyce called it the revelation of the whatness of a thing. This is one of the key points of Chan philosophy. There is the oneness of all things, and there is also, equally importantly, the whatness of each individual thing. As Shito, one of the teachers mentioned in Born in Fire, page 30, wrote, we and everything we perceive are both interwoven and not interwoven. This interweaving continues on and on, while each thing stands in its own place. It's so difficult to hold both, isn't it? Yeah. Simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's difficult to remember that both. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, the koans are good at conveying this. When asked about the heart-mind of the ancient Buddhas and the essence of the teachings, teachers often point to something right there, the juniper tree in the garden, three pounds of hemp, the fingers of your own hand, in the hope that you'll see how alive everything is, how thus come, and that all the philosophy in the world comes down to opening the eye that can see that and the heart-mind that can feel it. Pretty soon we're moving through our lives, meeting people and events with a kind of binocular vision, aware of the vastness in which we're all kin and what that calls from us, and also aware of the uniqueness and autonomy of each being and what that calls from us too.
Irma. Cohen practice is a long arc that usually begins with acclimating to the tradition and experimenting with different ways of keeping company with Cohen's. If you decide to settle, I have it sideways, by the way. If you decide to settle in, there will be times of dismantling or at least aerating the routines of your heart, mind, that have contributed to a sense of separateness and even exits from the vastness of your own life. Even exile from the vastness of your own life. That's neat about how many different ways you need to use to to approach a koan. You know, if you have one methodology, it's not going to get it. Mm -hmm. Or probably just to understand a person, if that's possible. How many different ways? What'd you say, Ellen? Just, yeah, maybe you're right about that. You know, we tend to have one method yeah. of looking at things. I think you're next, Jess. Okay. Um, there will likely be openings, large and small, that will confirm or reveal the vastness. Experiences that are nearly impossible to describe. Uh, Sojourner Truth, who had such a revelation. Oh had such a revelation in a Christian context, said with the wondrous simplicity of such an experience, oh God, I did not know you were so big. A little later, I know you and I don't know you. She had no name for what she was seeing, but when she saw it, she felt that she'd always known it. Without a practice like the koans, the water can close over these ineffable Oh, that's the word that uh, we talked about last week. It, it, yes. These ineffable experiences or their residue lingers <coughs> as yearning memory. With the koans, they become, they can become clearer and deeper and then, <coughs> excuse me, integrated into the substance of your life. Exactly how you turn awakening <laughs> into matter will be entirely particular to you. Hmm. So I'll come up with something different.
No one, none of this will happen just once or in the same way every time. Sometimes we'll feel as though you have the winds of the Tao. Tao? How do you pronounce it? Tao. No. Tao, yeah, thank you. You have the winds of the Tao at your back. Others might be disorienting and even painful. The cons accompany, accompany you through it all as you take up what the ancients call the great matter, matter of your life. How on meditation. How do you guys feel about uh, stopping here? I think that sounds great. <laughs> that works. Yeah, this is this is really uh, so deep on so many different levels mm -hmm. that if we were to go back and reread it tomorrow, we would all get mm -hmm. a different interpretation all over again. It would really be nice to be fresh when we're reading this. You guys agree? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So, so. No one will tell the whoever. I'll tell, but it's okay. okay with me. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> so have a good evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. Nice. Night. 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 Oh, he's gone. No. Can you hang on for a minute? Oh, baby girl. Good night. Good night.